Hello everyone, I'm Isabel Matreja, Marketing Manager for International Affairs, which is the Journal of Chatham House. Hi, I'm Christina Chota. I'm the Managing Editor of the Journal. This is the fifth episode of our podcast mini-series, Reflections at 100. It celebrates our century-old archive. In this episode, we look at our latest archive collection on empire and decolonization, edited by Mira Sabratnam. The archive collection brings together 20 articles from over the years. The articles speak to four tensions present in conversations about empire and decolonization, which were happening at Chatham House and in the journal. Tensions around settler colonialism and trusteeship, imperial peace and imperial conflict, anti-communism and self-determination, and finally, between capitalism and sovereignty. We'll get into these more a bit later. In this podcast mini-series, we've been speaking to the guest editors of the archive collections and also some of the article authors featured in order to discuss what the series can tell us about politics today. In this episode, we'll start by speaking to Mira Sabaratham, a reader at SOAS in London and editor of the collection. And because the collection goes up to about the 1970s, we will not be speaking to one of the article authors. Instead, we have Indijit Palmer joining us. Indijit is Professor of International Politics at City University London. He's also an expert on Anglo-American foreign policy, elites and institutions, and has written a book about think tanks. While our discussion with Mira focuses on what was going on at Chatham House, Indijit's going to give us a bit more context on other think tanks like the Council on Foreign Relations, and the broader context for these discussions on empire and decolonization. The articles in the collection are currently free to access, so please do go online and read them along with Mira's introduction. We're here today with Dr. Mira Sabaratnam, who is a reader in international relations at SOAS in London, with a focus on colonial and post-colonial world politics. Welcome to the podcast, Mira. Welcome, Mira. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Chatham House and International Affairs were founded at the height of the British Empire. What discussions on empire were happening in the journal in these early years? Looking through the archives of those early years, what's really fascinating is that the question of empire, of course, infuses all of the conversations that people are having about international affairs and particularly Britain's place in the world. You are having these discussions from an interesting angle. So the journal and the institution are founded by people with a very kind of internationalist spirit. They're thinking about these new models of cooperation and they want to think about how to forge peace and so on. But that also comes with a sense of wanting to troubleshoot around the world. So you see articles about troubles in Egypt, in India, in Turkey, in Palestine. There's a sense of the empire kind of having to look around and think about how to manage all of these situations. So the discussions on empire are quite interesting. They're quite wide ranging. They um, are about how the empire is working. They're about its relationship with other Uh, projects and institutions. They're also about other powers and their aspirations for empire, which becomes quite critical, particularly into the 1930s. So most of the voices in these early years, and we've seen that throughout these archive collections, were white British men. But were there any other voices talking about empire in the journal? Actually, one of the interesting things about particularly the early years of the journal is that you do have 
a number of non-Brits writing for the journal. So these might be visiting diplomats or scholars or other kinds of intellectuals. Uh, you have Italians talking about Italian uh, foreign policy. You have Germans talking about German colonial ambitions. Uh, you have a Swiss diplomat who's in the collection as well talking about the mandate system. So you do have this international circle and circuit, if you like, of people traveling across Europe and, and through the empire. Um, the other group, of course, which is quite prominent is, of course, South Africans, because they're very interested in the nature of empire, possibility of Commonwealth and Federation and all of these things. And these concerns are at the heart of people like Lionel Curtis, of course, um, important founder for the journal. The other two kinds of people who you see cropping up so the first is women. So you do see some women in the pages of the journal, even in its early years. And these women tend to be participants in the discussion. So one of the things that the journal is, is, of course, proceedings of discussions which are actually happening in person at Chatham House. And in the early issues, they capture not just the, if you like, the speech, but also the discussion afterwards. And so you do see women popping up in that context. However, you also, of course, have people from the colonies themselves, and they're coming in to talk about their own situations. Now, some of these are people who have been working with colonial administrations for a long time. They are essentially at the head of systems of indirect rule. So you've got the Maharaja Patiala, you've got Chikheri Kama from Bechuanaland, and these are very senior people within the existing systems, if you like, of native administration. But then you've also got, if you like, agitators. So you've got your Gandhis and other kinds of figures who are pressing for independence or at the time of independence are coming through. Bogiba, uh, you've got Nureri, um, Hastings Banda and other kinds of figures like that. So whilst, if you like, the centre of gravity and the common sense of the journal is within that white male British diplomatic colonial elite, you've also got this other wider group of thinkers and participants in the journal's proceedings. It's clear that contributors to the journal shared common notions of the time, such as racist attitudes towards the colonies. But despite that, there is still a lot of disagreement and tension within their opinions. So you highlight four of these in your introduction. Can you tell us a bit more about them? Yes, I'll focus, I think, on the first one, which comes over very strongly in the discussions around Africa and Palestine. And that is the tension between settler colonialism as a, you know, a system in which groups of particularly European settlers are going to a different uh, space and making a, a society there and the trusteeship model which is essentially about trying to get a group of people ready for self-government, whatever that means, and at whatever speed. And in a sense, within Africa in particular, the idea that Africans would be ready for self-government has been rejected compared to particularly other groups, right? So that's at the beginning of the 20th century. There's no sense at all that most Africans are ready for self-government, and that comes across strongly in the flavour of the discussions. And you also, of course, then have settler presences, uh, the longest, of course, being in, in South Africa, but also significant ones in Rhodesia, in Kenya and, and in pockets elsewhere. So now the discussion about self-government and, of course, the pressure for self-government is coming through very strongly. And it's, you know, those contradictions between self-determination on the one hand and colonialism on the other hand are very much live in the 1920s. That pressure has to manage 
the fact that actually there's a very well-established group of white settlers in all of these spaces and they have their own political interests and, and essentially what those political interests are in are a permanent segregated community within a particular territory. And so there's this tension between the interests of the settlers and the interests of the metropole. They have, if you like, different varieties of racism underpinning their worldviews and what they think should be happening in the spaces. And, and one of the contributors to the journal or the discussions um, points out that actually moving from the metropole to, let's say, South Africa hardens racial attitudes compared to what they are in, in the metropole. And that's because, I guess, the interests or the intimacy of the situation and the contradictions are much more brutal, if you like. So you have empire pushing in two directions at once. On the one hand, it's trying to protect the interests and the long-term stability of the settlers. On the other hand, it's saying to the indigenous peoples, we are getting you ready for self-government. You can have your own administration, but you are restricted actually in what you can do and the interests of the settlers have to be managed and so on. So this becomes a very complicated situation and you see that struggle playing out really violently, of course, in Algeria. Um, that's not British colony, but you see it playing out in Algeria, you see it playing out in Kenya, you see it playing out in um, Rhodesia, and you see it playing out, of course, in South Africa in this in this different way. So that's one big tension. And the tension, of course, is not just between settler colonialism and trusteeship, but all of the other varieties of colonialism in between, direct rule, indirect rule, and, and so on. Another really interesting tension is around whether empire is a force for peace or conflict in the world. And if you like, you've got imperial optimists and imperial pessimists. So they all accept, if you like, both the reality and the in-principle desirability of empire as a way of organising the world. It's the natural order of things. It's the duty of civilised countries to, you know, have the burden of civilising the rest of the world. And those kinds of ideas are the shared underpinnings of their discussion. But they disagree about whether imperial growth and federation and expansion is a force for peace or a force for conflict. And those who are saying it's a force for peace, and particularly those coming through South Africa who want to see this grand federation of the British Commonwealth amongst the dominions, say that actually the British Empire is a microcosm of world peace. Right? It's this space in which people are living peaceably together and they're all connected culturally. And it's a great example of, of peace and cooperation. And then you've got those on the other hand, and this becomes particularly acute during the 1930s, saying, no, it's actually this desire for acquiring empires and colonies that is causing tension between European powers. It's going to be the cause of a resurgent Germany. You've got Italy also looking for colonies and uh, making claims for them. And they're making the same kinds of claims for imperial entitlement as are already being used by Britain and others. And that's to say that they have demographic pressures, so they need to expand their countries, and they have economic needs for progress, so they need access to resources and commodities. And so there's this unease about the fact that on the one hand, of course, Britain doesn't want its rivals to prosper, but on the other hand, it has to recognise that the arguments being used are closely related to some of the arguments that Britain has itself used. And of course, we know that continuing into the 1930s, those tensions with Germany and Italy and Japan come to the forefront as they're all seeking empires of their own. 
The other tension I mention is the tension that emerges mostly towards the middle of the century, of course, between anti-communism on the one hand and self-determination on the other. So anti-communism becomes a very significant concern for the Brits thinking into the 1950s and 1960s in particular. Yeah, so I was surprised to see that actually in the collection. So I just wondered if you could tell me a bit more about how, you know, what does communism have to do with the British Empire? So we often conventionally mark 1945 as, if you like, the end of the conversations about empire in a way and the beginning of the Cold War. And so historically we periodise them. But there's really two decades of overlap where these are really, um, and maybe more than two decades, but two decades of serious overlap where the question of how and whether with whom to decolonize is closely entangled with the Cold War concern for anti-communism in the Western alliance. So what you have is actually, on the one hand, a desire to facilitate the process of independence up to a point, but to facilitate it in a way which doesn't fall into the hands of communists. Now, the most obvious example of where this plays out vividly is in French Indochina in what becomes the Vietnam War. So you actually have the same fight going on from 1945, where Ho Chi Minh and other Vietnamese who had actually collaborated with the Western allies against the Japanese occupation, then start demanding independence and self-determination and so on. But because they're communist, there's a long kind of rearguard action and that goes into first French defeat and then eventually American defeat uh, in the 70s. So what you have for Britain is a related but different situation in Malaya. The communists are not nearly as, as strong in Malaya. They're a much smaller group, but they are also trying to get power in Malaya around the time of Malaysia or what becomes Malaysia in general is seeking independence or self-government. And so what Britain is doing, particularly in the 19, well, from 48 to 1960, really, is ensuring that the communists do not achieve power in Malaya. And so there's a long counterinsurgency campaign um, to essentially extinguish them. And that's actually a successful campaign compared to the failures that you saw in, in other parts of the world. And that story kind of plays out. It influences the response to the Mau Mau in Kenya. Um, and it's, of course, a wider concern in Congo and Algeria and other spaces where that decolonization dynamic is very important. To put that in a longer historical perspective, you've, of course, had the age of revolutions in Europe through the 19th, going into the early 20th century. And the Russian Revolution uh, in 1917 is an important event in so far as it starts to organize and galvanize anti-imperialist forces in different kinds of ways. So it's trying to connect with, not always successfully actually at all, the intellectuals in the global south. And they end up sharing quite a lot of the critiques of imperial capitalism. And so a lot of what they seek is ownership over their own resources and the ability to kick out, if you like, the bourgeoisie, both of the colonizing countries, but also to kind of deal with the native bourgeoisie who have been seen to being collaborating or otherwise profiting from imperialism. So there's an intellectual connection with the Russian Revolution that's, you know, obviously ongoing from the early 20th century. But then the Russians also start offering material and moral support to a number of the independence campaigns. So some of them are quite interestingly taking both support from the Americans who say they want to sort of see an end to colonialism and from the Russians who have their own version of what the end to colonialism 
looks like. So lots of the third world movements, the anti-colonial nationalist movements, are trying to chart a path for national independence that essentially upholds national sovereignty or ownership over things, but tries not to also irritate either great power too much for fear of intervention. Thank you for putting this into context. That that really makes sense of the, the fourth tension that you highlight, which is around economics. So economic independence was a key discussion before, during and after decolonization. And while most colonized countries did gain independence, the economic world order did not change at the same time. Do you think we are still feeling the legacy of colonialism in our economic systems? The short answer is yes. More than colonialism, I would say imperialism. So what I mean by imperialism are forms of hierarchical domination and control. So this doesn't require direct kind of territorial existence. It requires, if you like, structural power in the international system. Where does that come from? It comes from control over currencies. It comes from control over commodities. It comes from the ability to therefore influence the price of labor. It comes from intellectual property and technology uh, regimes. It comes from import dependence. It comes from hydrocarbon dependence. And it comes from mechanisms of debt and indebtedness and the wider discourse around development and, and so on. So, I mean, that's, it's a very simplistic answer on the one hand, because things did change after independence. And a lot of economists, particularly from the global south, paid a lot of attention to trying to improve the terms of trade for their countries or to have more aid for development. Like, you know, the Marshall Plan, for example, in Europe after the war was not given as debt. It was given as aid and it was given as a massive injection in order to grow the European economy such that there would be markets for American goods kind of going forward. But instead, what you had with the countries of the global south was a much more complex system of some aid, but also loans. And then those loans tied them into a sort of debtor creditor dependence structure, which then ended up having a lot more influence on the decisions that states could make about where their spending would go, what they would spend on public services, and so on. And this is, in many respects, effectively the regime that we've had continuing into the present, where heavily indebted poor countries have to agree their public policy programs, firstly with donors and creditors, really, rather than their people. So there is that straightforward tension between, let's say, a democracy deciding to do something and then the creditors kind of allowing it. Uh, what's interesting, I suppose, today in Britain is we're seeing an interesting play on that very uh, issue whereby, you know, a government tries to do X and the market says no. And the market therefore seen, is seen or is actually demanding a formal kind of austerity in order to restore public finances. It's a very interesting irony, isn't it? A reversal of fortunes going on. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, one of the long running, if you like, not jokes, but observations in social sciences that you often see experiments or mechanisms, new mechanisms happening first in the global south and then kind of coming back into uh, the global north. And so if you think about indebtedness and austerity and wage suppression and these kinds of things, of course, these have been a feature of southern economies for many decades and are now kind of like redounding in, in other spaces. So this has been really fascinating to delve into these issues. And I just wonder, having put this collection together, I think you said there were over 400 articles that could have been in here. Having put this collection together and having, you know, got into these issues, have you, what have you learned? Has anything surprised you? Some things, if not totally surprising, have been interesting to observe. I would say that 
it's interesting how the problems have not really changed over time. And I think one of the most poignant moments for me was actually reading the debates around Palestine in the 1930s. And you can see easily all of the issues that you have now reflected already in what people were talking about and in their concerns and in their framing of the problem. And, you know, talking nearly sort of 80, 90 years later, that, that those dynamics are still very much in the space. So I was interested, I suppose, in what looked like a very prescient debate, but maybe those things were just always there. The second interesting thing is about the levels of common sense on some questions. So even as people are debating about diplomacy or international affairs or the balance of power, there's a very central common sense about first, racial and civilizational supremacy, and second, the responsibility of the British Empire to manage these things, right? So it's this idea that Britain is absolutely integral to world order and that it is, if you like, it's the responsible party. It must take charge of various kinds of issues. And that, and as I think if you also look at the archive collection on British foreign policy, that's been a kind of constant through the ages. And it's interesting to think now about the role of that discourse in informing Britain's understanding of its place in the world in what is, of course, an incredibly changed environment. And I suppose the third thing to say that I've learned is that I suppose on the debates on race, even though there was a general consensus, of course, around things like white supremacy, you do get the odd voice popping up saying, actually, this isn't this isn't real or this this isn't proven or this doesn't exist. Um, Norman Lees pops up in the collection, you know, sort of challenging what seems to be the authoritative account of the colour problem in Africa by Wyndham. And he says, well, you've just assumed that racial difference is real and there's no, you know, there's no basis for this. And he's, of course, sort of <laughs> kind of laughed out in the in the discussion, but he starts to look very prescient. So we can see that this contestation, these tensions, they're all the way through, even when the British Empire is at a very powerful point in its life. This has been such a fascinating discussion, Mira. So thank you for your insights. Thank you for having me and thank you for letting me uh, rifle through the collections of international affairs. Thank you, Mira. And yes, everyone, go and read the introduction. It's available online, as well as the 20 highlighted articles. So we're here with Inderjeet Palmer, who is a professor of international politics at City University of London, also an expert on US foreign policy, Anglo-American foreign policy elites. And in 2004, Inderjeet wrote a book on the power of think tanks in foreign policy, which looked at Chatham House and the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. He's also been a frequent contributor to the journal um, and one of the guest editors of our special issue on the liberal international order in 2018. Welcome to the podcast, Inderjeet. Hi. So from the journals founding in the 1920s, it published a lot of discussions on empire and how the British should manage their colonies. Mm -hmm. And then later on, also on decolonization and what that should look like. Were those discussions happening at other institutions and think tanks as well? And were they similar? Were they different? Yeah, well, I think if you kind of transport us, if we transport ourselves back to 1919, 1920, straight after the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution as well, and then you've got the loosening of Australia and the other dominions from the British Empire as well, as well as anti-colonial revolt, what you've got is a kind of a world in ferment. And a world in ferment is always questioning the ways things were and how they ran and worked. 
and it develops new ideas about what ought to be. So pretty much right across the spectrum in ideological left-right kind of thought, uh, but also in terms of racial thought, there was a massive upsurge of uh, ferment. So you have Pan-Africanism, Pan-Asianism, Pan-Latin Americanism. You've got versions of Pan-Anglo-Saxonism as well, as well as the fact that the Bolshevik Revolution has happened. And prior to that, of course, Lenin and the right of self-determination of nations and the freeing of the colonies and the whole of that, it meant that all kinds of new networks developed. Some of them came up in think tanks, which in effect was a fairly kind of recent invention, principally in Anglo-America. So I think you've got the kind of rise of really big corporate wealth in both countries, but particularly the US by the 1880s, 1890s. And then you, from that new wealth, you've got philanthropic foundations. And philanthropic foundations helped to found the social sciences in the universities, including Chicago. And then they also helped to found think tanks. So the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace was probably the first major think tank around 1910. And uh, Chatham House, or the, what it was called, the Royal Institute of International Affairs and uh, the CFR, came after that. So yes, it, the, everybody is discussing these. And there are numerous books now which show that actually in all parts of Asia, uh, in Africa, and Latin America and elsewhere, the circulation of people and of ideas and a massive upsurge at that particular time. So nations are being built in the world which didn't exist, becoming more self-conscious of that. And that has an effect on the way in which thinking takes place. So that period there is a great one of ferment and change and radical offshoots. And then in the decolonization period too, you come out of a world war, uh, you come out of the position of the communists in the world is far more powerful than it was in 1939-1940. So not only have you got the Soviet Union, but you've got Eastern Europe, and then you've got the prestige of the Communist Party in fighting fascism, which is very strong as well. And then, of course, the linkages between the Soviet Union and the Chinese Revolution with the, what becomes the Third World or the Global South. So the networks of thinkers and political activists and so on. I think the key thing is think tanks are a particular form of knowledge kind of institution, but universities are another. But in a lot of countries which don't have great corporate wealth, think tanks didn't form in the same kind of way, uh, or they formed as dependencies on the Western, or the, particularly the Anglo-American. Anglo so in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, in the 20s and 30s, you got the equivalents of the CFR and Chatham House, Institutes of International Affairs developing. But by the 1930s, Belgium, even fascist Italy had more or less levels of freedom and others as well. So you have got lots of people thinking about the shape of the world system, their country's role within it, and how to sort of, uh, if you like, be in that world and navigate all that change. Yeah, I mean, you've covered so much just then. <laughs> We've talked a little bit about you know, yeah. the whole history of the world, yeah. it seems like. But mm. and I think an important point that you know these discussions around empire and decolonizations are really questions around what the world is going to look like. And you know, lots of different thinkers around the world were, were talking about that. And I wonder if we can just focus on a couple of moments. Like I know we, we talked about World War II, and you did touch on the others, but did the role of think tanks change after World War II and perhaps after the Cold War? Well, I think... Basically, they proliferated more widely. So you got a larger number of 
think tanks themselves, particularly in the during the Cold War. So in a way, the size of the the establishment, uh, the state in the United States, it increased exponentially. So you get the development of the Rand Corporation, for example, and a number of other institutions, which are all thinking about America's place in the world, etc. And it's become much more kind of contested and complicated by it. By the time you get to the end of the Cold War, well, the other thing in the Cold War is the post-colonial states are also a new factor in world politics. And they are trying to shape the international system in the kind of ways that they want to do. And they, you know, meet at Bandung in 1955. They form the Non-Aligned Movement in 1961. And then in the 1970s, they demand a new international economic order. So all of that kind of intellectual, political, ideological ferment is going on. So the role of think tanks in Anglo-America has to step up in order to compete in that battle of ideas, which is going on. It's really a battle for the shape of world politics. So it proliferates. TV joins in as well. Universities expand exponentially because of the GI Bill, but also in the 60s in Britain as well. So you've got more knowledge institutions with more voices, probably broader than they used to be. And I guess by the end of the Cold War, you've got the development of right-wing think tanks, which is a new phenomenon, beginning small in the 1970s as a kind of backlash against the Vietnam War and the counterculture of the 60s. Uh, so the right-wing think tanks like Heritage Foundation, American Enterprise Institute, with Bradley Olin and Smith Richardson, Scaife and others, so who, if you like, are much more hawkish, and they kind of lead into the Reagan revolution where the US kind of goes back on the kind of offensive again. So yeah, these historical periods have a big impact on knowledge institutions and knowledge production themselves. But the think tanks are a kind of quite a powerful force in a number of respects throughout that period. Just zooming back to the role of Anglo-American think tanks before the 1970s, it sounds like sort of think tanks in the UK like Chatham House and then CFR were sort of acting in concert or had fairly sort of parallel opinions. But um, we heard from Mira that even within Chatham House, there were debates and divergent opinions how about how decolonization should be managed. Was that happening in the US as well? Were there debates within CFR on, yeah. on these topics? I think there's two levels at which uh, we can think about this question. One is the membership of the, the two think tanks, the people who attend the meetings and basically don't play much further role in the organization. And second level is the organization itself and its kind of research committee, the kind of intellectual power within the institution, uh, which looks at the world, looks at the way the world drivers of change, and look at the way in which to situate themselves and their country, as well as the broader West and the Western alliance in that changing world. And in a way, they're kind of uh, standing on the walls, on the boundaries of that in order to kind of think about it, whether it's up to uh, scratch in terms of meeting the challenges. So for the mass membership, yes, I would say the debate is far broader. There's a wider range of ideas. And I know a lot more about the Chatham House breadth of debate than I do about the CFR, because uh, the great thing about Chatham House was that the meetings were not only recorded in terms of the speeches, but they're verbatim records of the Quest Q&A. And they go on for like dozens of pages, which is fantastic for anybody who wants to see what kind of questions were raised, who was in the audience, what was the kind of boundaries of the debate, was it narrowly kind of focused or controlled, 
And what you find there is actually incredible representation of a wide range of ideas on race, colonialism, decolonization, white supremacy, the Western alliance, etc. So I think, yes, there were these wider debates, but in the kind of organization itself, that actually probably can be divided into two parts too. There's the working stiffs who run the thing and administer and so on, and who often look for intellectual leadership to the director of the research committee or whatever. And they often are actually a little bit more critical. But I think there's a politics of the institution, and the politics of the institution focuses also around the relationship with the British state, the American state, uh, and its various agencies, but also the corporate donors who provide very, you know, the large funding for it. So there you've got kind of powerful interests in which Chatham House and the CFR, in a way, are located. And in the, U, in the U.S. case, people in the CFR and its leading positions are often in and outers of the State Department or the National Security Council or, or whatever. Um, so they are much more closely related to, to power. Uh, that's partly because the independent civil service tradition which exists in Britain isn't as strong in the United States. So the think tank community and that kind of epistemic or organic, organic intellectual communities in Washington, D.C. and New York are in effect a privatized version of the civil service. That's where they do their thinking, but they're funded by big corporate and other interests. In Britain, there is still just about a kind of independent civil service with the foreign office going back to 1780-something, and therefore people build their careers on an understanding of British power, British interests, and how they're located and changing and so on. So the think tanks play probably less of a role directly because you've already got that huge built-up knowledge, historical knowledge. Whereas in the US, it was a democracy without a state. It became open to voting before you had systems of management of voters, uh, although it's quite small. And it's kind of developed its own ways of doing things, which isn't the way it happened in Europe where the states were much more centralised. You've already started to talk about it there, but thinking about the influence that, that Chatham House and CFR and other think tanks have actually had on policy, I wonder, looking at those early years again, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, what influence did Chatham House really have on policy making in the UK? So that's a really good question. I think I would say there are three forms of influence which I have discerned from the work I've done. One is there is input into policy making broadly conceived. Second, the climate of opinion among the, what are usually called the attentive public within their sphere. And the third is unofficial diplomacy. That is the semi-official character of many of the people who populate the upper echelons of Chatham House itself and who are in the study groups, for example, and who are also appointed to various kinds of commissions of inquiry uh, and uh, reports which are being written. Uh, and they often attend unofficial conferences, which have had guidance from the Foreign Office, for example. So you can find lots of examples of that. In the Second World War, which is probably the high point of that policy influence in particular, in fact, in 1938, the Foreign Office asked Chatham House to set up a body called the Foreign Research and Press Service to translate foreign language newspapers into English from Poland and Hungary and anywhere else to find out what's going on. Uh, kind of listening in on what's going on in the world and tendencies towards Nazism, against Nazism, etc. And that Foreign Research and Press Service in 1941 
was effectively nationalized by the Foreign Office and became known as the Foreign Office Research Department. That Foreign Office Research Department carries on today and is now known as Foreign Office Analysts or something like that. And just three or four years ago, they celebrated their 75th anniversary. That grouping inside the Foreign Office included people like Arnold Toynbee. And so these they were involved in world order questions. They relocated to Balliol College when the war started, and they hold held a huge number of meetings. I mean, there's there's a massive, largely unlooked archive upstairs or downstairs or wherever, which looked at every area of policy to which they could contribute. So in my book, I looked at five or six areas, uh, specific policies on which decisions were made, which strengthened what you could call later on the Anglo-American alliance. So the Atlantic Charter, for example, and the role of Chatham House in that. So the uh, 1939-40, the British ambassador to the United States was a, was a leading founder of Chatham House, uh, Lord Lothian, Philip Kerr. So you've got people who are in kind of very high positions who are in, actually involved in foreign affairs officially, but also are connected with Chatham House and its ways of thinking and so on. So the Atlantic Charter, the destroyer's basis deal, the mutual aid agreement, the Lend-Lease, Bretton Woods and the formation of the United Nations. Those are the kind of things I looked at and for CFR and Chatham House. And they were at one level or another very closely intertwined with each other and in those policy-making processes. The economy is something which is obviously in the news a lot right now. And one thing we discussed with Mira was that although during the process of decolonization, economies became independent, the world order around the kind of economic world order didn't necessarily change so much. You know, we still... American hegemony is still very much a thing. But I wondered, in spite of that, have there been significant changes within the economic system? I think that you couldn't call them revolutionary, as in kind of a, a kind of in a Marxist sense, that is a kind of a violent rupture with the past. But there have certainly been major kind of recalibrations, which, if you like, you emerge out of World War II with a kind of a the memory of the 1930s and the instabilities and the drive to war that occurred from the Great Depression and the kind of rise of Keynesianism and the whole rise of kind of a state capitalism, if you like, or at least statism, nationalization and so on and so forth in many countries, the New Deal in the United States, but more of a social model than there was previously. So if you like, that economy, which was much more state dependent in the period of reconstruction from, say, 1945 to the late 1950s into the early 1960s, and with its World Bank and IMF and the Bretton Woods kind of system for greater levels of stability, that did resurrect Western economies and brought in Germany and Japan quite successfully into itself. But it did retain, if you like, a kind of subordinate position for the post-colonial states. But as I was saying earlier on, that Bandung, the first Afro-Asian exclusive non-white conference, was a key moment where you've got large numbers of countries, leaders, thinking about what they are going to do in the world and how they're going to do it, and whether they're going to be recruited by one or other of the superpowers at that time in the Cold War competition, and often seeing themselves as, if you like, recruitment for one side or the other, and maybe playing off one side against the other. But by the 1960s, you've got the non-aligned movement, but you've also got a greater level of awareness of their strength. And I would say that the OPEC oil crisis generated some momentum among global South powers too, which was to say 
They were demanding a new international economic order. They wanted a redistribution of income, wealth, and power at the global level towards a kind of national development. And so the kind of response to that, in effect, was that the Trilateral Commission, for example, in 1973 forms, because at one level you got the Global South Powers challenging, encouraged by Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, because they're using a commodity which many other countries also produce a commodity, not necessarily oil, but coffee or whatever it might be, and thinking they could use that their commodity to win higher prices and elevate themselves up that international hierarchy itself. It wasn't to be the case, but they felt it. But they also made these international demands. So they were more demanding. They demanded a new international economic order. And this was taken seriously. And the Trilateral Commission which included Western Europe, North America, and Japan, reflected another schism in the Western system, which was that it wasn't 1945 anymore, that Germany and Japan had re-emerged as independent greater powers, which wanted a greater say, and Europe in general wanted a greater say, in a system of American hegemony. So you've already got the loosening of the kind of central core of Western power, and also the loosening of the West's relations with the third world or global south. So I would argue that when you look at the period of the 1972 to about 1980, when the demand for the new international economic order is greatest, you see massive intellectual ferment in the Trilateral Commission, at CFR, in Chatham House, in the various universities, many other think tanks, including the right-wing think tanks, about how do we manage all this ferment and demands for change? How do we do it? And it's really interesting because the view is that we need to look at the world in sort of at different levels. There are countries which are have no role to play in the world because they're not economically very powerful. But there are countries which have middle-class aspirations. They want to be in the system and have a stronger position within it, not necessarily violate it in a revolutionary way. We must recruit those leaderships into an outer rim of the system by giving them some say. And it's interesting that some of the articles in Foreign Affairs at that time talked about how American militant unions in the 1880s and 1890s were dealt with by the big corporations, by the incorporation of their leaderships with more privileges, not necessarily giving much to their members, but to the leadership groups in order to incorporate them into the system, reward them, but as a way of diffusing their revolutionary content. And that's exactly what happened. So when you look at the powers identified in that 1970s block by these intellectual institutions, which are related to their governments as well, I would argue that the BRICS, and China was included before Mao's death, the BRICS are the kind of the leading countries by 2000 uh, which exist, which are identified in the 70s as these middle-class aspirational powers. So by 2000, they have official recognition having arrived and being important and so on, but fully embedded in WTO-type rules. They are no longer outside the system demanding change within. They're now inside the system demanding a stronger position within that order. So I would argue that that happened by 2000, is now actually expanded in a period of general hegemonic instability. That what China was in 2000, it's far stronger now 
22 years later. India, Nigeria, Indonesia, Mexico, uh, Venezuela, and many others as well. So I would say, yeah, maybe not a kind of revolutionary shift in the economic world order, but quite frankly, it's a far more competitive system built up within that liberal order itself and uh, more challenging as a result. I was fascinated by what you said about the the Q&As of Chatham House, Mm. events that you've been reading through. Mm. It must be a roller coaster reading Mm. through those discussions. Um, Was there anything that really surprised you or struck you? Yeah, I guess the breadth of the discussion, because unless you read those meetings, unless you know those meeting notes exist, and I only found them by accident, unless you know they exist, you don't know to go looking. And because early on, the what was said at the meetings was made into an article in International Affairs, I automatically assumed that this is what was being thought. So what really strikes you, I think, really at various times is is the breadth of opinion and the kind of number of different kinds of people with experience. And I guess the church people who are often members, people who are missionaries in other countries who had experience of Africa and Asia and Latin America and so on, who had quite different ideas about world politics and different experiences and different ideas about racial equality and inequalities, etc., compared with those people who are much more kind of central to the organization. So very often they were much more kind of radical than the speakers were and much more challenging than the speakers were. So they didn't necessarily always get to speak in the sense of giving a talk, but their opinions are recorded in those verbatim meetings. But the amount of material is so large, you need a lot of people for a long period of time to be able to kind of excavate do the archaeology, if you like, (laughs) of that and see what else is out there. Sounds like we're going to have to have you back to do another archive collection. (laughs) (laughs) This has been such a wide-ranging conversation. I think we've talked about everything in the history of the world. But (laughs) thank you so much for sort of putting into context some of the discussions we have with Mira. Um, So, yeah, thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much for having me on. Great to speak to you. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Well, that was a fascinating episode. What a meaty discussion, both with Mira and Indigit. Yeah, I feel like I've really learned a lot about our archives. It actually made me realise that I knew a lot less about our archives than I thought I did. I'm really tempted to go and find some of those Q&As Indigit was talking about. Yeah, well, I definitely have to have a few more archive collections coming. Oh, especially on, on India. Absolutely. I think what really surprised me was actually the incredible diversity in opinions at the time. Both Indigit and Mira highlighted that there were intense debates going on about empire decolonization. And yeah, I didn't expect that. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. We're looking forward to seeing you again for the last episode of our mini series, which will be out in December and will focus on women's role in international affairs. We'll see you then. Bye. <laughs>